by 8. And for a guy, you could get up at 7.45 and be out of the house by 8. But for some reason, for these ladies, got to get up at 5.45 or 6 o'clock to be out of the house by 8. Well, I got to get the kids, let, let the kids figure it out for themselves. And if they go to school with unmatched clothes, they can figure it out for themselves. They'll get teasing up. They won't do it again. No, but so I try to wake up when I can. Well, last year I had to get my, um, I have a CDL, so I can drive the church bus and the church van. And uh, one of the things I had to do a physical for it. And they said, we think that you have sleep apnea. You think I have sleep apnea, whatever. They're like, you have a big neck. That's prejudice, isn't it? You have a big neck. That's, that's awful. You have a big neck. Thank you. Your neck's not very small either, buddy. But anyways, I said, we want to test you. So I took this test and tried it at home. And it said that 57 times an hour, I stopped breathing 10 seconds or longer. That's a lot. I told them the test had to be wrong, and I wanted to do it again. I did the test again, and it was 63 times every hour. I stopped breathing 10 seconds or longer. Every hour, 63 times. So they gave me this machine, a CPAP machine. You normally think of old people, or more mature people using these things. But a 34-year-old has one, and I will just tell you this, the first two weeks I hated the machine. This little tube that you put around your head, it's blowing air, you, you sound like, uh, oh, I am your father. You sound like Darth Vader there is what you sound like. But I'll tell you this, after the first two weeks, when I put it on, I sleep like nothing else, and I'm out. I used to wake up like two or three times a night. I used to think I was choking in my sleep. I thought it was acid, but it was all, not, it was all that stuff. I do it less than one time an hour now because of this machine. And this machine, I love it. I'll take it every, it, I sleep great with it. So I try my best to wake up, but sometimes with that machine, I'm just too far gone. David, a while back, woke up in the middle of the night. And he was just crying in his bed. Or actually, I think it was Matthew. I don't know why I'm saying, why I'm saying David. It was Matthew. I, why I confuse those two a little bit, I shouldn't. One's red hair, one's blonde. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, anyways, he's just crying. His eyes are closed. I'm like, what, what's wrong? And he, you need to use the bathroom? He's shaking his head, no. He just won't open his eyes. I pick him up. I take him into the hallway. I just tell him to open his eyes. He opened up his eyes, and he saw. And he calmed down. I don't know what he was dreaming about. But when we're in the dark, you don't see things very clearly. You need to be in the light. When we get saved, we're no longer in the dark. We're in the light. So we see the craziness in our world, and we're like, oh, this is played into the fact that the Lord's coming. You know, this coronavirus that disease that's going to take over. It's going to be something that's using the... Just stop. You don't know anything like that. Just stop. Too many conspiracy people and things. Get off of YouTube and quit being so into your conspiracies. And I could name three or four people sitting in this room that I'm talking about right now. Get over your conspiracies, alright? I'm not going to say anything else about that. The one, okay, the ones who know it, they're, they're looking at me, so I know who they're... Yep. All right, Lori. Oh, why did I say a name? Let's keep on going here. And um, when we look at these things, we're, we're in the light. So we see some things. We see it coming to pass. You say, well, what is this? What's the believer's conviction? Letter A, the imminent return of the Lord. He's coming again. Christians believe that the Lord is coming again, and that brings great comfort to our hearts. There's a chart on the screen I want you to see. 
Now, it's kind of small for these TVs. You're like, huh? And, um, and I don't think that magnifying glass isn't going to help you see that chart any better. Next week, though, what I'm going to do is I'm going pr to print out a copy of this, and there'll be a copy. Anyone can take this off the back table. I should have done that today, but I didn't think that far ahead. But this kind of shows all the things that are going to play into. The Bible talks about the day of the Lord. It comes as a thief in the night. What is entailed in the day of the Lord? Now, all these things are listed right there, and I'm just going to run through them real quick. When you first get to, you see the U that has an arrow on the end of it, right? The first event that's going to take place is the rapture. At the rapture, the dead in Christ rise first. And what happens there, what we've got to understand, and I'll cover every, all of this in the message in a few minutes and tie it all together. But right now, when our loved ones die, that know Jesus Christ as their Savior, their body goes in the ground, and their soul goes to be with God. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So their body's in the ground, soul is with God. When someone dies without the Lord, their soul goes to hell, and their body goes to the ground. That's what the Bible says. The rich man and Lazarus, that's exactly how it works. A saved person, the ground for the body, soul is with the Lord. For a unsaved person, body in the ground, soul is in hell. That's Bible. When the rapture happens, Jesus is going to come. He's not coming all the way to earth. That's the second coming. Before the second coming ever happens, he's going to come. And we're going to, he's going to call us out. We're going to meet him in the air. The trump of God's going to sound. The Bible says the dead in Christ shall rise first. Now, that's what you've got to understand. Those who are with the Lord right now, their souls are with the Lord. When the rapture happens, that body is going to meet soul, and they get their glorified body at that moment. Say, so, well, what do those people have that are with the Lord right now? I don't know how to explain it all to you. But to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so they are with God. They, at the rapture, they get their glorified body. Then those who are alive during that time, after the dead in Christ rise first, those which are alive and remain will be caught up together in the air and will be with the Lord forever. We go up to heaven. For seven years we're in heaven. In heaven, there is no time. It's going to seem like an eternity. In that time, you have the, uh, the judgment seat of Christ and the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's what's going on in heaven. The day of the Lord here on earth and what it refers to is the rapture kicks it off. When the rapture kicks it off here on earth, there's going to be seven years of tribulation. Now, why does there need to be? What's the point of these seven years? When the Bible talks about the day of the Lord in verse number 2 of chapter number 5, of our text, it refers to an extended prophetic time in which God will finish his program with Israel. You see, if you study the book of Daniel chapter number 9, when Israel said, we have no king but Caesar, crucify him, they rejected Jesus Christ. The time and calendar for the Jews stopped at that point. 69 weeks of years. It stopped right there, and there's one week of years left. How many days are in a week? Seven. So one times seven, there's seven years left for God to bring a conclusion to everything with Israel. Because Israel rejected Christ, the church age came into the picture. And during the church age, us Gentiles all got saved. And praise God for that. And God's working through the church today. But there's going to come a point where God says, my children come home and be with me. When that happens, the Antichrist, the Bible says in Daniel chapter number 9, verse number 27, it says, um, 
I'm skipping some verses, but it says, And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. What he's going to be doing there is the Antichrist, he's going to make a treaty with Israel for seven years. Now, there are a lot of Christians out there that don't believe in the rapture. The Bible doesn't talk about a rapture. Read chapter 4 and chapter 5 like we just did. It's all in order, just like it's supposed to be. For the simple man to understand. There are men that say, we'll be taken out of here before God's wrath halfway through. That's not Bible. Some say there's no rapture at all till the second coming. And that's not Bible. Think about this. Why would we be here? Well, because Christians suffer persecution. Yeah, Christians should. That's part of things. We do have tribulation. We have things. But we that have the light, and the Antichrist comes along, we're going to know who he is, right? And we'll be proclaiming, that's the guy to watch out for. Because we have the light. Correct? we got to be out of the way so those in darkness can follow him. That's how it works. Seven years of tribulation here on earth is going to be a mess. He makes a treaty with Israel. And during that time, and you think about it, everyone tries for peace in the Middle East, right? And, you know, let's say the Bible's not true for a second. Then why do people care so much about the stupid place called Jerusalem? If the Bible's not true, and you say, Pastor, you just call it, no. It's the, it's the city of God. It's a special city. But in our world's eyes, it's a, just a city. Then why is it always on the news? Why do people care so much about it? Because the Bible is true. It is important. Satan hates the city of Jerusalem. You think about those things. And so, and people try to get peace. Trump's not going to find peace in the Middle East. No one will. Some people say, Trump's that last Trump. That has nothing to do with Trump in the Bible. It's talking about a trumpet. I had someone try and tell me, the last trump of God shall sound. No, 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 no. Don't you plug Trump in there. I know you like to do things like that, but Christians, just calm down, okay? And if you ever, and this is the thing, if you ever get your hope in whoever's in the White House and those things, you got rocks in your head. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. What we got to understand is this. He's going to sign a treaty with Israel halfway through the tribulation. He's going to, the abomination of desolation takes place, which is talked about in the book of Matthew and talked about in the book of Daniel in the midst of the week. The Antichrist, what's going to happen is there's going to be another temple built in Jerusalem at some point. They're going to be worshiping and they're going to be sacrificing just like they did in Bible days. The Antichrist is going to come into the temple and he's going to say, stop, I am God. And he's going to be worshiped as God in the temple. That's the abomination of desolation. And basically all hell breaks loose after that time. Seven years of tribulation. At the end of the tribulation time, it's called the second coming of Christ. It's when he comes. And praise God for him. He's coming. After the marriage supper of the Lamb, he comes on. And let me just say, the second coming of the Lord is not going to be like the first time. He's not coming as a baby in a manger. He's not coming as a lamb slain. He's coming as a lion of the tribe of Judah, coming to conquer with great power. And the armies of heaven, we get to come with him. And what's going to happen at the end of the, during that time, the battle of Armageddon is going to take place. Satan's going to be bound and put in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. 
I could spend probably 10 to 15 Sunday mornings going through all this I'm covering in 10 minutes. So you say, Pastor, you're going too fast for me. I did a series a while back on all the end times. You can go to our website and you can find every sermon I preached in detail about all these points. And just go back and listen there. Or if you've got questions, you can ask me later. But I cannot give you in about 10 minutes worth of time every detail. But I did have someone last sort of say it's the most clear anybody's ever pointed out to me. And so just pay attention just a little bit longer and we'll get through. The rapture happens, seven years of tribulation. That's when the day of the Lord begins at the tribulation time. The second coming happens and he comes and he conquers. And Satan is bound in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. What happens during that thousand years? The millennial reign of Christ happens. And we believe in a literal millennial reign that Christ will reign in Jerusalem. Literally. There are many Christians who do not believe in a literal reign of Christ. The Bible in Revelation chapter 20 is very clear about it. And what we got to understand, you say, well, why, why the millennial reign of Christ? It's important. Because one of the things you got to remember is the Lord made a promise to Israel, didn't he? They promised to Abraham about all that land. It'd be theirs, didn't he? Is that land theirs today? No. Not even 10%. The millennial reign has to happen because it fulfills all God's promises that he made. That's why it has to happen. And you want to talk about the millennial reign? The world's going to be a completely different place at that time. We're going to have King Jesus ruling reign a thousand years the, lion, the lamb and the wolf will be able to lay together without the lamb being dead with the wolf biting its neck a thousand years a great time here on earth at the end of the thousand years Satan is loose one more time and it says that he deceives many people the number of the sand of the sea so this one the Bible says during the time during the thousand year reign there's going to be because we that are have been with the Lord we'll have our new bodies, our glorified bodies. Now this gets a little weird. Don't get weird on me, okay? You're going to have mortals and immortals living together. So some of those weird shows you like to watch or weird movies, it's not like the zombie thing, you know? We're not going to be zombies, but immortals and mortals, that's how it's going to be. There are going to be those who do not get saved around, and they're going to be deceived by Satan one final time, which is crazy to me say how does that even make sense i honestly cannot tell you how it all makes sense but it's what the bible says so let god be true and every man a liar and all let's go with what he says satan has one last battle he, and he encompasses the city of god jerusalem and this battle is won very easily fire comes from god out of heaven and devours them all up and then satan is put into the lake of fire forever at that point and what we got to remember is this so satan's in the lake of fire forever and then the Bible says that the great white throne judgment happens. Now remember how we talked about the dead in Christ, their bodies are in the ground, and their souls with the Lord, right? At the rapture, they meet together, and they're with the Lord forever. Those who died without Christ, their bodies in the ground, they've been in hell. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 20, the end there, it says, verse 11 through 15, that um, the fact that um, yeah, okay. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. Verse number 12, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. 
And the sea gave up the dead. We gotta remember is the ground gave up their dead, the sea did, and they that were in it, and then it says, And death and hell delivered up the dead which were among them. Leave it right there for a second. Death, the body, in the grave. Hell, where the souls of those who do not know Jesus have been. So at the end, this is the second death. We were blessed to die once and not have to die twice. Those in the second death, the body, death, is delivered up before God, and the soul in hell is delivered before God at the great white throne judgment. And then, verse number, and it says, and they were judged every man according to their works, verse 14. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So, the first death the point unto men wants to die than the judgment, correct? That's what the Bible says. So those that die with Christ, bodies in the ground, souls with the Lord, rapture happens, soul, body, meat, new glorified body. Those without Christ after the tribulation, after all this thing happened, their body and their soul that's been in hell stands before Jesus Christ and he judges them one final time and they're cast into the lake of fire forever. That's the second death. Why we don't have to have part in the second death is because Jesus took our place. And what we got to remember is this, as we look at all this, hell is not the final resting place for those without Christ, the eternal lake of fire is. All these things take place, this is the day of the Lord, and once this has been finished, the Bible talks about, you can go back to that thing just for a second, you see the fact that there's a new heaven and a new earth. This earth is going to be gone. Global warming is going to take it. Something's going to take it, it's going to be gone be a new heaven, a new earth. It's eternity, it's heaven. All the former things are passed away, all things are become new. There's no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. None of those things. That's the day of the Lord. Say, how am I supposed to be comforted by death and hell and all those things? This world looks at those things and this world fears. Even sometimes in the Baptist church, we sit here on a Sunday morning and I talk to you about what's going to happen, the events that are going to take place. And there are some people that get scared when they hear of it. As a believer, you don't need to fear. There is no fear. Perfect love, Christ's love for us, casteth away all fear. You say, well, how am I supposed to find comfort in this? We'll get back to it in a minute. Let's continue on. We see the believer's conviction. We see letter A. We see the imminent return of Christ. Letter B, and i got to find out where I am in my notes because I just went off my notes for about a lot of things. And some of you might say, I kind of follow along the notes. They're all there. If you need more help on the day of the Lord, you can ask me and I'll help you with that sometime. But then not only do we see the imminent return of the Lord, but letter B, we see the empty promise of world power. Besides the conviction we have of the Lord's imminent return, the believer is also convicted of the empty, or convinced of the empty promise of world power. Look at verse number 3 of our text. So it says, Let no man deceive you by any means. For, or for that day... No, I'm in, well, I'm in chapter number 2 of Second Thessalonians. Go back. Here we go. Verse number 3 of chapter 5. Here we go. For they shall say, Peace and safety. Then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. You see right there, when 
Christ takes the church out of the way, what's the world, gonna, the world leader going to say? The Antichrist. Everything's okay. We'll be just fine. You know, the coronavirus, it just took out certain people. But it's gone now with those people. I don't know what they're going to say. But they're going to try and make everything sound like it's okay. You know, God, t- God took all the bad people out of this world to leave us good people here and got rid of all the haters and things like that, whatever they might say. But we've got to understand something. Everything's not fine. World leaders are still going to say there's peace and safety. And verse 3 says that sudden destruction is going to come. And that word destruction refers to death or ruin. And it speaks of a travail upon a woman with child. You know all of a sudden when it's that time, and it's time to deliver that baby. And I remember William, our firstborn, we went to the hospital a day early, all the way to Loma Linda, and he wasn't ready to come. And then we think he's ready to come, and we spend 36 hours, and he's trying to poke his head out, and it doesn't all work out. And finally, it all gets done. But it took a long time for William to come. So you think about it comes suddenly. I remember the next three especially our last one, Matthew. We were at the hospital a couple hours, and he just came out of nowhere. You know, you're the, the, the ladies at home nesting or whatever you call that, getting ready, and you know, you got your suitcase by the door because the time's going to come. And men, you know, there's a look on her face when it's, yep, that's that time. Let's go. Let's get the show on the road. And the uh, Bible says, the Bible uses that as a comparison right here. The Greek word translated for travail specifically refers to a woman in pain of childbirth. Jesus uses the same words in Matthew 24, 8, where he talks about this is the beginning of sorrows. He's referring to the tribulation. And it's the Greek equivalent for the phrase, the time of Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah 37, which also speaks of the tribulation. So they all go together. And it's amazing. You can be just going right along with your pregnancy, then all of a sudden, when those contractions start coming, they start slow, and then they get very big. And you know, and what's the Bible say? That's what's going to be like in the end. They're going to say everything's all right, everything's all right, and slowly, and it's going to just come apart. We see number one, the believer's conviction. Number two, we see the believer's caution. In the midst of that, there's a caution. The Bible's clear that believers will not be part of the coming destruction. And God told the church of Philadelphia in Revelation 3.10 that because they kept his word, he had preserved them from the wrath to come. Because we've trusted Christ, it says, look at Revelation 3.10, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. When we as believers are spared from the wrath to come, we need to be ready and be ready for it to happen. God tells us of his return, partially to give us comfort, but also partially to caution us to live circumspectly so that we're prepared for his coming. Think about it with me. Letter A, we talk about this caution, to awake. Verse seven. Look at verse 6 and 7 of our text in chapter 5. Therefore, let not sleep as others do, let us watch and be sober, for they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. It says here the word sleep there means to, to drop off to sleep, to fall asleep, to yield to sloth. I love that little meaning there. When we are asleep, we're not aware of our surroundings. Some of you don't have any clue what's been preached this morning because you've been sleeping for the past 15 minutes. And you need to wake up to the things of God. 
You need to wake up and be alert to the things that are coming. And the Bible tells us, 1 Corinthians 15, 34, Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. You have his knowledge, and God calls us to be awake to righteousness. Be alert and ready for his coming. We need to redeem the time because the days are evil. We need to live for Christ. We need to share the gospel with others and be awake. Not only does it tell us to be alert, but also tells us to remain temperate. Verse 6 says, let us be sober. This means temperate, circumspect, calm, or collected. Why shouldn't someone drive when they're drunk? They're unaware of their surroundings. In their impaired judgment should never happen well that doesn't happen to me and that's why so many drunk drivers kill people maybe it's by the grace of God you haven't done that yet it's stupid to drive a car drunk it's stupid to get drunk that's what the Bible says Wine is a mocker, and strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. You're stupid. Foolish. Be careful of the things you do. And if you were awake to the things of God, you wouldn't do those things. But we'll just leave that right there, and you can think about that one for a little bit. That, wouldn't that be great? The Lord comes back, and you're driving drunk in your car. Or you're sitting at the bar drinking right when the Lord comes back. You're getting ready to sip that beer and, oh, hey, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, good thing that beer's not up here with me. Or you're just cussing somebody out. Getting ready to say your last little bit to them and there's Jesus. Oh, yeah. If we'd all live our lives and be awake to the fact that he's coming, it would help us out a lot. And there's not enough preaching on that stuff today. Mark 13, verse 34 through 36 tells us, For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey, who left his house and gave authority to his servants, to every man his work, and commanded the poor to watch. Watch ye therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh, at even, or at midnight, or the cock crowing, or in the morning, lest, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. We need to examine our lives and we need to live truly in light of Christ's return. If we have unsaved friends, today's the day to tell them about salvation. If we have a grudge against someone, today's the day to get forgiveness and move past it. If we're distracted by the world, we need to get our focus back on eternity. We need to awaken and let her be. We need to be prepared. Be prepared. We keep on reading there in verse number um, 8. It says... But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. Doesn't that sound like something else? The armor of God. Doesn't that sound like the armor of God found in the book of Ephesians? Yeah, it does. Except it gives a little bit more light to this thing of salvation. Because some people say, i got to put on salvation. You're already, those who are putting on the armor of God, you're already saved. It's not to get you saved. It's the hope of your salvation. Because what area does Satan like to distract and like to get you messed up in? The mind. What protects your head? A helmet. Right? Yeah. 
the hope of our salvation. That's the helmet we wear. We need to be prepared. See right here, you notice verse 8 says to put on the for a helmet the hope of salvation. The hope, what it means is hope means a confident expectation. We do not have to doubt our salvation, but we can be confident in the fact that we're saved. Philippians 1.6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work, and you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. The believer's conviction, the believer's caution, and I, I'm sorry, it's gotten late on us, and we need to get to number three. The believer's comfort. Okay, now I want some comfort. How do we comfort one another? What are you talking about? We talk about all this death. And all these awful things that happen. Where's the comfort involved? Look, verse number 9. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together, and edify one another, even as also ye do. You see, the believer's comfort, letter A, comes from the fact that we're preserved from wrath. Verse 9 says that God hath not appointed us to wrath. The word appointed means to set, place, fix, establish, or ordain. And God has not ordained that we go through his wrath or judgment in the future. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse number 10 talks to us about this and says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. There's comfort in knowing by being a saved child of God that there, you don't have to suffer God's wrath. Let her be. Why else? What other comfort do we have? We're promised eternity with Jesus, with God forever. The believer's comfort is not only in the fact that we're saved from wrath to come, but also the blessed promise of spending eternity with Christ. The, the rest of that verse says, For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. The word obtain means to, to preserve, possess, or purchase. Salvation means deliverance or safety. We obtain our eternal salvation in Christ. God's plan is not for us to experience wrath, but to receive salvation. That's his plan for everyone. But people have to make a choice. We've been given salvation through Jesus Christ and receive deliverance from the tribulation when we're raptured and glorified with Christ. Verse 10 talks about He, Jesus, who died for us. He shed His blood and died for us so that we can be forgiven, escape the suffering of judgment, and spend eternity in heaven with Him. And verse 10 goes on to say there that whether we wake or we sleep, whether we're alive or whether we've died, that's what it says there, we should live together with Him. We know that when we die, and if we die before the rapture happens, 2 Corinthians 5.8 tells us, Paul said, We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. The moment to be absent from the body means to be present with the Lord. The last breath a believer breathes is their first breath with the Lord forever. There's comfort in that this morning. That's why we have hope that others don't have. When we lose a loved one, we sorrow, but we don't sorrow as others because we have the hope of seeing our loved one again with the Lord, and what a blessing that is. Jesus has promised to prepare a place in heaven for us, and what a comfort it is to know that we will live forever. We'll see our loved ones again, and we'll be able to be with Jesus for all time. That's the comfort. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 says, For our conversation is in heaven, 
From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body that may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able to subdue all things under him. Our conversation there means our lifestyle and thoughts are already focused on heaven. God's promised those who trust in him a new body. Praise God for that. A new home and everlasting life in heaven. In addition to the promise of eternal life, the Bible tells us how we can attain eternal life. 1 John 5:13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. We're preserved from wrath. We're promised eternity with Him. And let us see. We're comforted by His truth. Verse number 11 there says, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. The word wherefore points back to the previous verse because of the fact that we will be in heaven and our loved ones are with the Lord. Because of those things, because we're saved, because we're spared from the wrath to come, because we're going to spend eternity with God, we can comfort and encourage each other based on that. You know something that's very interesting too? It says there that we're to comfort one another, right? Remember how we looked at the beginning of the message? We looked at um, John chapter 14 and talked about the comforter. The same word that we're supposed to, how we're supposed to comfort one another is the same Greek word that is used for the comforter. It means, the Greek word comes from the word paraclete, parakleo, which is used for the Holy Spirit. It means to come alongside, to exhort and encourage, to strengthen. And that's what the Holy Spirit does for us. And guess what? We... God instructs us to come alongside others and do the same thing the Holy Spirit does for us. That's what we're supposed to do. How can we comfort each other? Well, there are five ways I want to give you super quick. They're already in your notes. I don't think you've got to write them down. But five ways to comfort. First ways to edify. The word edify is found in verse number 11 there where it says, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another. Edify means to build up, to establish, to promote growth. We edify each other as we go out of our way to encourage other Christians and build them up. Part of comfort, you edify. Number two, remind. Remind. We are, remind, we are to remind each other that we serve a God who comforts and cares. And as we go through things and God comforts us, we need to take the comfort that God's given to us in a certain situation and pass that comfort on to someone else. That's what 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3 and 4 say. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that the right? Yeah. I thank God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Christ Jesus. And uh, that's the wrong verses up there on the screen. The verses say this, so we can thank Jay for that. I think that's 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4 says, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. Verse number four, listen real close here. It says, Who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. We're supposed to take the comfort that God's given to us and comfort others with it and remind them, number three, we need to pray. Pray. We may not always be physically present as we would like, we can pray for each other. There's comfort in prayer. Number four, we can remember. We can help share and help people remember the promises of God's Word. 
salvation, eternal life, supplying our needs, all those things. Now we can give. Another way we comfort each other is by giving to needs. It might just be a simple cup of coffee. You go with someone and get coffee. It might be a simple meal. It might be helping with an electrical bill. I don't know what the case may be. But Jesus, well, this was said about what Jesus had said in Acts 20, 35, I have showed you all things, how that so laboring you ought to support the weak, and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, more blessed to give than to receive. Life's full of challenges. But we as believers have assurances of truth from this book right here that we can use to comfort one another. We can take comfort in the fact that the Lord's coming again. We can rest in hope of our earthly problems that they're only temporary. And soon we'll be with God and spend eternity with Him. Knowing that He can return any moment means that we need to be awake and we need to be prepared and always be living in light of His coming. Think about at home, your house. If, if you know someone's coming, you have the house ready. It's those surprise visits that no one likes. And so a lot of times you're just not ready for it. The Lord's going to come at any moment. We need to be ready. We need to live with spiritual alertness and readiness to meet Him. And then finally, knowing that we're saved, heaven-bound, promised eternal life, we can comfort one another with these words. And there are people all over in this room that were here last service and this service that are going through a hard time. Our job as Christians, our job as a church, is to come alongside and to help those who need comfort. Yesterday we had, um, went to George Collins, his wife passed away. We went to our service yesterday. There was probably 10 or 12 of us from church there. What were we doing? We came alongside George and comforted him yesterday. That's what we do someone's going through a hard time, we do what the Holy Spirit's done in us. As God's helped us through the trials in our lives, we come along with someone and we help them through their trials. Christianity is not this thing you keep bottled up and keep to yourself. God designed Christianity for us to work with one another, to love one another, to comfort one another. And you wonder why, you wonder why churches are a mess today? Because we do not function the way God created the church to function. We need to be there for one another. A church is a family. Not just some place you come on a Sunday morning and you forget about all week long. It's a place where we edify and build up one another, we comfort one another. And there's so much more to it, and uh, we'll talk more about that another day. Father, I